Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. This podcast is sponsored by Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor from the Esquire Network. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dark dramas, and tune in to the Spotless series premiere November 14th at 9, 10 Central on the Esquire Network. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. You could say all that or you could just call us about race. I'm Tanner Colby, and joining me here in the Panoply Studios in New York is my regular co-discussant, Raquel Cepeda. Hello, Raquel. Hola, hola. I thought you were going to call me the Dominicana in chief. No, AC wrote that in the script. Okay, okay. You don't care. I'm not that important. Yeah, I (laughs) know. Dominica at large, I think. Dominicana at large. Dominicana at large. And joining us and welcoming back, Jamil Smith, senior editor at New Republic and host of Intersection, a podcast about identity and what brings us together. Hello, Jamil. What's up? What up, Jamil? Today, we are going to finally discuss the puzzling and possibly crumbling appeal of Ben Carson in the Republican presidential primary, and we will dissect the issues surrounding heroin and white people. First, mm-hmm. Jamil, what's up with you? What's up with me? Working on the podcast, we just released an episode about Ben Carson and uh, probing what it means to be a black conservative, or what it means at least to identify as one. So that was uh, a big success. And uh, you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I know because it comes out every other week, right? Every other Tuesday. Bi-weekly. Exactly. You can look for it on iTunes at Intersection um, or iTunes.com slash Intersection. Other than that, I'm going to have two essays in the next issue of New Republic. One is an essay that's already online entitled, A Black President is Not a Magical Negro. I love that story, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. And then another one is a lengthier essay about football and concussions. Ooh, Stemming back to my previous really? expertise. Do you have a background in football? I, you I do. Look, you have a frame. I, mean, I don't mean to stereotype <laughs> and be like, you know, but you remind me, like when I first met you, I was like, I bet you he played football in college. I didn't play football in college. Was not terribly Damn athletically it. gifted. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I, I was a producer at NFL Films for six years. So and you toss the football around. Yeah. So I'm just being like stereotypical and completely like in some I've way racist. I've been told racist. my shoulders are quite wide. But <laughs> yeah, you have that kind of a look like somebody who's like played like it was a jock in school. Like I was a wrestler in high school. Oh, get out of yeah, here. Yeah. Not terribly good at it, but I was a wrestler nonetheless. Oh. Yeah. But then, uh, no, the, the athletics gene uh, somehow passed me by. But I definitely participated and i love sports yeah and so it was good to write about football again and uh good to confront the real dilemma about the sport that i love so much and raquel what's up with you actually i was just on a podcast called the cypher show where they actually talked to luther campbell about the book that you wrote about him oh, well, there you go. that you ghost wrote 
With um, him. With him. With him. Sorry. Yeah. What was it called again? The Book of Luke. The Book of Luke. They interviewed him and they're basically like, Sean, I want to give a shout out to Sean Sotaro and Josh Cross. They remind me a lot of like uh, Mark Maron. He's very deep. He's like, he interviews people whose lives have intersected in a very impactful or holistic way in, you know, hip hop culture. So he gets really deep, deep, deep into it. And it's not like the, like, you know, what's your favorite song? Who are your top five favorite rappers? It's a lot deeper than that. So it was really cool to do the show. And uh, we talked about race also, the show about the show about race, not about race. The show, show about the race. The show, show about race and gentrification, all these other really cool things. Just go to thecyphershow.com and find uh, show 127. It, it was really cool a conversation. And, you know, thank you guys for having me on. It was fun. And also, you know how I always bring everything back to DR, like you said? Yes. I got I always get these really cool emails from the Dominican Studies Institute at CUNY, and I received one recently about a Tuskegee Airman who was actually Dominican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I didn't know. There's going to be some materials coming out about Dominicans' role in the in World War II and, you know, just like these little tidbits that you didn't know who was who and what was what, and it's kind of cool. Cool. Yeah, it's really cool, yeah. His name was uh, Stefan... Hotess. Well, there's nothing new with me except I took my two-year-old out for his first uh, Halloween and saw him experience Aww. candy for the first time. <laughs> which was, it, it, It's not cute. It's crazy. <laughs> I, I, we've been very good. Fruits, vegetables, no refined sugar, whatever. He's like, and our friend told us, oh, they don't even know what candy is yet, so you can, they just think it's a game to go around and get stuff, and so like, don't worry about it. And we did, he got a lollipop, and he got it, and like, oh, he was through that paper in like in two seconds, and then just sucking on the blow pop, and, and it was like watching, I was like seeing a crazy person. It was, did you, did he you got go? that first hit. He got that. No, it was like it was like mainlining. It was like you could see it in his eyes, like. Rah! Oh my God! That what was what was he for Halloween? What was your son Dash he, for Halloween? He was a tiger. He was a tiger. Was did a, you dress up? Did I dress up? No, I'm I'm not one of those parents who's going to do like the family costume. Fuck that. No. No, me either. No. Uh-uh. I'm keeping my dignity <laughs> right here, all set. He can be as cute as he wants. Um, we're not. I'm not going to be. You know, the dad Ghostbuster with with the gun. No, not happening. Sometimes that makes me feel bad when I, I see do, other parents. I feel bad because I, I see the other parents <laughs> doing it, and they like they make I their costumes, do it. and yeah. it's like no, no. I agree with you guys now, but I don't have kids yet. And I'm, you know, uh, a little sucker shows up. I might dress as anything to make him smile, so or her smile. Yeah. You know, when my son asked me, "Mommy, would you please?" I said, "No, I'm not dressing up." <laughs> yeah. So, well, I speaking speaking of ghosts and ghouls and madness, let's talk about Ben Carson. There's no better way to jump this conversation off than with music. So, AC, please drop it like it's hot. Angels, the hot stars spangled. Wow. So uh, that was Ben Carson's wife, Candy, singing a stirring rendition of the national anthem. And, you know, that's not even the zaniest Carson moment, especially as of late. So let's start unpacking the heavy bags that is the Horatio Alders of the far right corners of the GOP. Or, sorry, should I say the abyss of the GOP? Uh, so what's, you know, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? As of the time that I took a train this morning to the studio and saw you guys in the lobby, the stories have even shifted even further. 
Right. So the latest so development is... So what is going on, Jamil? Well, first things first. Um, as we were commuting this morning, we learned that none of his Detroit... And we're talking about Ben Carson here. None of Ben Carson's Detroit classmates can remember any of the tales of violence that he has used to help buttress his narrative of redemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, in his book, Gifted Hands, 1990, this, this, this essentially Bible of black respectability, he stated that you know he attempted to stab a friend of his in a heated moment. And nobody can remember him doing anything like that. He said that. he was alone. Well, if he tried to stab somebody, by, by definition, he wasn't alone. And so... My, right, right, right. But I mean, I'm sure that guy just like disappeared. No, it was, nobody wants to say. No, it was a relative, he now says, and the relative, relative wishes to remain anonymous. It was a relative that he says that he stabbed so, or tried to stab. First, it was a friend that was a relative. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that, you know, things shift, you know, memories shift around. And yeah. You're like, okay, you know, people, you know, Ben Carson, he's an older guy, you know, thinking maybe people don't remember everything. But one thing that dropped later is that Ben Carson admitted after basically being confronted with the evidence, fabricating the story about him receiving a full scholarship to West Point. And uh, when you say later, you mean like a, like a couple hours ago? I mean, later in the day. <laughs> I mean, there's been two Ben Carson. There, I mean, you know, right. this is midday and we might have another one by the end of the day. Right. So essentially what he's done, Political reported this afternoon that in response to an inquiry from them, that one of the like, keystones of his, again, keystones of his narrative was actually fabricated. You so know, he was in, always sleepy? In gifted hands. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he stated that he was introduced to a general who had just ended his command of uh, U.S. forces in Vietnam, William S. Westmoreland, and they dined together. And so Carson, by his telling, was given a full scholarship offer at that meeting. And West Point has no record of him even applying to the military academy. Right. So at this point, I'm treating gifted hands like a novel because... I don't know what's true in it anymore. But isn't that like a stab in the back? Because I didn't know this, but when I read it in your piece, that it it was like required reading for black churches all over the country, right? Like it was like a... I wouldn't necessarily say required reading, but I mean, it was something that was around. I mean, the first time I remember seeing a copy of Gifted Hands was in the rec room at my church. I mean, it's something that got passed around. It's like, you know, people took it out from the library. It's just something that... You know, my parents certainly didn't push on me, but I read it because it's okay. This is an inspirational black man who's alive. This amazing, legendary neurosurgeon. You know, this is a model for black excellence. And he was like in the self help, right? In that, in that like kind of area, like kind of like you know, you can do it. Like he had like a Booker T. Washington kind of like, you know, pull yourself up. You can do it too. Right. Don't let race get you I down. Mean, it, it certainly, like the initial narrative of Ben Carson's conservatism <sighs> is a very much a Booker T. Washington conservatism, self-help in the midst of racial injustice. And so that is something that a lot of black folks still sign up for. And what it has evolved into is this extreme evangelical, very political version of conservatism. And what I wrote in a piece called uh, Ben Carson is saying all the right things for a new Republic is that instead, you know, he's not a sellout. As you know, people, a lot of people, I'll call him Uncle Tom and sell out and Uncle Ruckus. I call him Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben. 
I'm only kidding. I'm you only know. kidding. I don't call him that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all these different things, all these sort of different epithets that the people directed him, but he has, you know, hasn't sold out. He's actually bought in to what Republicans are selling. And this Republican version of America and specifically of racial conflict that that serves, frankly, his Horatio Alger narrative. But can you be conservative and black or conservative and Latino and talk about racial injustice in a way that's not going to be off-putting to people that want you to play into their respectability politics? Can you have both? I think that we need conservative viewpoints on race. However, specifically when it comes to the Republican Party, I find it difficult to, even after doing a podcast about it, understand why a black person would choose to align themselves with a political party whose goals, whose platform actively seeks to maintain the racial status quo. And while things, yes, have improved since Jim Crow days, right now isn't all that great. You're aligning yourself with people who think that now we're we're past the finish line as far as race goes. As, you know, Clarence Thomas is sort of like veered off the cliff in the, in the same way that Ben Carson has of taking these right-wing politics so far. And I read some stuff that Clarence Thomas wrote in like the early 80s, late 70s maybe, and it was remarkably sane. At that point, you could still believe that there, you know, it was like Darth Vader, there's still good in him, right? You could bring the <laughs> Republican Party. If we, if we all defect to the Democrats, then we've abandoned this party, and that's a bad strategic position for us to be in. We need to be in the Republican Party to help steer it back in the right direction. And I think in maybe in the 1970s, there was enough of a Rockefeller Republican base that you could still believe that. I don't I don't know that you can believe that anymore. So is the line like bring it back to like the Lincoln's Republican Party and make it back, you know, go back to that? Yeah, because I mean, there was sort of even within the Nixon administration, there was lip service to black empowerment and black owned businesses. And it was it was it was a sop. It wasn't genuine, but at least it was like making an effort, right? And even up through like the Colin Powell Republican era, you could still say, and even under George Bush, there was a faith-based initiative. And I talked to a guy, a black guy who worked for George Bush, because he said, all right, well, you know, we can't abandon the Republicans completely. If he's sincere about this faith-based initiative working through black churches, we can engage with that. We can get on board with that. And there was some, until Katrina, there was some black engagement with the Bush White House of thinking, okay, you know, we can make this work. And really since Katrina through Black Lives, through the anti-Obama rhetoric, it's just it's just gone completely sideways. And I don't know where you even find a toehold as a conservative of color within the current GOP as exists to pull it back in the right direction. I don't know I don't know how it's possible. Right. I mean yeah, splinter that's, off. I'm all, I'm a big believer in working within the system to change the system, but when it comes to the Republican Party, I don't yeah, like Tanner says, I don't really understand where you put yourself within that party to then start to affect change. I think that Orlando Watson who is in charge of the GOP's outreach to black voters has the hardest job in America. Orlando to his, you know, to his credit, I think, is a true believer. I mean, he believes the stuff that the Republican Party is selling. And, you know, if he's working for them, he should believe it. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think he's a very steep hill to climb because, frankly, I just don't think that, you know, the Republican Party is all that interested in getting black voters to actually vote for them when they're so useful as scapegoats. I remember um, Noam Chomsky recently said at the New School that, Today's Democrats are like centrist Republicans and Republicans are like like far, far like the moderate Republican Republican of today is like the far, far, far right 
of the 80s. Mm-hmm. So maybe if the Republicans use kind of like what the Democrats study the more, like what the Democrats are doing in the 80s, they'd win more people of color over. Well, again, I don't necessarily think that it's in their interest. I mean, given their yeah. policy platform, given their uh, the the how useful people of color have been as pawns in their political rhetoric. Frankly, I'm not sure that they're really all that interested in getting black and Latino and Asian people to vote for them. And I, yes, Asian I, Americans are yeah. fleeing the party as well. I think it's almost a mistake to talk about the GOP as a party anymore. I mean, like the Democrats and the Democratic candidates, whatever you think of their policies or their personalities or their capabilities in the job, it still resembles an entity of government. The Republican Party at this point, I don't know what it is anymore. It's become this thing, and we've sort of flirted around it through the whole season of the show with Trump and everything else. And I think, you know, Carson and Trump are the best thing that could have ever happened to the GOP because it is forcing a catharsis. We can, we can no longer go with the Willie Horton coded language that allows the GOP to pay lip service to racial equality while exploiting those racial fears. That's done. It's all out in the open now. And so either the Republican Party cracks up and we have a new, genuine, sane, conservative alternative that crops up or the GOP fixes itself. It doesn't seem to be that this election cycle is going to be the cycle where they fix themselves. If Colin Powell ran, do you think that he'd be the front runner? I think he'd be running around where Bobby Jindal and uh, and Chris Christie are running. Right. Really? This Here's, is a completely different party now. It's a completely different party. Like I feel like I look at someone like Marco Rubio or Mitt Romney, and I'm like, you're a calculating, sane person. And if you were running with a base of Rockefeller Republicans— I could maybe see voting for you because you would be saying sane things because you would have to appeal to a sane base. Like Mitt Romney, I have no doubt, is a competent manager. And if Mitt Romney didn't have to appeal to all these crazy people and he could just run in a pro-business centrist lane, he would manage the country and keep the the wheels on like he did with the Olympics. All right? right. I can respect him that far. But because there's this base that they're beholden to and they have to go off the rails with just the crazy talk, the people who have... In, in the Republican primary who have experience in government and real credentials, whether or not you agree with them, are running at 1%. And the Looney Tunes are up at the top. I don't okay. even understand it anymore. So let's talk about zany talk and wrapping right. up. Like, like, let's give some of the listeners like an idea of like what he's talking about. Like, okay, we know that Donald Trump hates Mexicans. He thinks Latinos are rapey and all that. But Ben Carson can really like step into a cipher with him and go blow for blow. I've heard him say Joseph built the pyramids with the help of God. To store grain. And then Ben Carson says a few years ago that the worst thing that's happened to America since slavery has been Obamacare. And I believe that he said it at one point in front of Obama. So that made everybody else get like a hard on for him in the GOP. So he started believing his own hype. And now he's becoming even zanier. And recently he said that the Holocaust could have been prevented had Jewish people been armed with guns. So tell mm-hmm. so so the question is this, who's worse for the GOP? Donald Trump or Ben Carson? Jamil. I mean I think it's Ben Carson on a number of levels. First level is this. Trump is the id of the Republican Party. You mentioned catharsis earlier. He is the the vehicle through which so much of that far right is exercising itself. And this is a typical thing that we see in Republican primaries. This id, you know, sort of gets its gun off 
no pun intended, during this early stage of the primary. And then eventually the Republicans settle on an establishment choice. So he's serving in that role and doing so, you know, from the standpoint of a celebrity, which makes him more visible. Ben Carson, on the other hand, is doing the same thing, but performing instead of loud, brash braggadocio. He is doing this earnestness performance. He's performing and, dopey on uh, in and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Here's why, in bringing it back to race, I think it's actually more dangerous, is that he is reinforcing a conservative misunderstanding of race in America and how black people are supposed to behave, especially exceptional black people. He is undergirding their false narrative of advancement. He is simply, by the virtue of promoting his Horatio Alger narrative of coming from inner city Detroit and a poor background and a violent youth, and we'll get to that, to find God and become potentially the... uh, the most famous neurosurgeon in the world. And, you know, he found God, by the way, after he tried to stab that guy. Okay. Uh, yeah. So if that never happened. Right. So yeah. if, the, if the stabbing's false, then then the, then the, then yeah. the redemption narrative falls apart. Yeah. Right. And, and if he doesn't, you know, if he's not applying to West Point like he says he does, well, then, you know, his, his nationalist narrative yeah. falls apart yeah. a little bit. So all this stuff is done and performed and in service of making him look like this ideal black man. And so this is a guy that they love to hold up and say that Ben Carson, he's not on the, uh, the plantation of the Democratic Party. He's in a, you know, speaking of slavery metaphors. Mm-hmm. He is somebody who thinks for himself and it, and it helps them to undergird this narrative that if you're not conservative, if you're not agreeing with the people seeking to actively subjugate you and other black people and other Latino people and other Asian people in this country, then you are somehow still on a plantation. You are still a slave. And, you know, it, it just it just speaks to a very self-serving look at how race has progressed as as a dilemma in this nation. Even even people that you think would have access to education and to travel and to seeing how the world really works and how the Americas work. Somebody like, for example, Rupert Murdoch tweets about, you know, in a very binary way, what does it mean to be? He gets to say what is authentically black, if you will, and what isn't. So if they're still stuck on the binary when it comes to what black and whiteness means, how are they going to appeal or not fall apart by the time that Asians and Latinos become the majority in this country? Like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the future of the GOP? Right. And I wrote about the Rupert Murdoch tweets, and those were sent on October 7th in support of Ben Carson, uh, alleging that he would be, quote, a real black president who can properly address the racial divide. Mm -hmm. That is, to me, you know, a perfect encapsulation of how the conservative movement in this country currently views the racial issue. I mean, black people are positioned as conciliators. Mm. We're always the ones who have to bring it back together. We're always the ones who have to heal the divide when, in fact, we didn't cause the divide. Yeah, exactly. It's always our job to calm things down. We're always made to have to be the peacekeepers in this structurally unequal system that is built to oppress us. Then we basically have to do so by magic. And that's why I argue that they view Ben Carson as this magical Negro who can suddenly, by virtue of being in the presidency, bring everyone together and they just simply don't get it they don't they don't get it because they choose not to get it well he's showing that if you sanitize the historical account let's say for example slavery because he sanitized that that you too can succeed 
So he's he's showing and proving, if you will, in hip hop parlance, you know, I'm showing and proving that if I just buy into this whole shit, right, into the textbooks that are being, you know, uh, uh, produced in Texas, that I too can be successful and become American. That's like almost like an extreme version of assimilation. I can grant Carson this much. It's a fallacy, but it's an understandable fallacy that if working twice as hard and being respectable worked for you, then you might inculcate the belief that this is what works. I can grant him that far that he, he goes out and preaches this respectability politics narrative because, hey, it worked for me, so why won't it work for you? And he just doesn't think critically beyond that. I always find these guys' personalities more interesting than the racial narrative that we put on him. With Trump, it's the nativist white thing. With Carson, it's the respectability. Trump is a narcissist. Carson has some messianic thing going on that he's going to be, I don't even know what a psychologist yeah. would call it. These guys are, are not well. Something, there's, some, there's some chips up there that aren't, aren't connected to the motherboard with these guys. And I think, you know, I think with both of them, rather than analyzing their motives and what propels them, what's far more interesting is what's happening to the country around them as a reaction to who they are. They're just, this, you know, they're the cult of personality guys. And, and what does it say? Because like our last discussions about the GOP focused on this white nationalist narrative and there's this white nationalist resentment, you know, uh, clustering around Trump. So what does it say that Ben Carson is the guy that replaces him? Because Ben Carson is the same nativist attitude with a black face talking about how, I don't know, first of all, I don't even know why you need to say that you don't want a Muslim to become president because I don't think any Muslims are going to become president within the next few cycles. So I don't know, but what's, it's crazy. He's just living a life unfiltered. I mean, you heard what he said about, you know, you go into prison and you come out, you you go in straight, you come out gay. I mean, there's something wrong. Well, it's also, I mean, not to bash religion, but let's bash religion. If you have a mind that can believe that the earth was created in six days, then you have a mind that can believe anything, right? right? And that's the problem with the fundamentalist viewpoint of life is once you internalize living within that fairy tale, then reality doesn't matter at all. And you're addressing there the Seventh-day Adventist belief that the earth was created literally in six days and also some of the other stuff that Seventh-day Adventists believe. I mean, granted, this is the very first Seventh-day Adventist who has been in, you know, this kind of prominence in the presidential politics. If he's the one who's saying that Muslims can't be president, it's worth looking at his beliefs, too, and wondering how those beliefs are would influence his decisions in the Oval Office. I mean, he's he's said on the record that he, he doesn't separate his beliefs from his decision making. Yeah. So it's worth and looking at. And he wants at. to bring church and state back. And it's really interesting to me that... I read on BuzzFeed, people are drawing comparisons between him and Pat Robertson, who did the same thing, who wanted to bring church and state together. And he actually said, and what kind of struck out to me, I guess, in recent memory was what he said about the Haitian earthquake, that basically, you know, Haiti was just paying for the karma of daring, basically, to start a revolution, to basically free themselves. So when you have a black American dude kind of like inspiring the same kind of drawing that kind of parallel and inspiring that same kind of base. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say uncle Ben, I don't want to say sell out, but it's almost because it's too easy. It's too easy. It's too easy. easy. And it's, and it completely ends the conversation. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, you call somebody an uncle Tom, I mean, look. You don't want to address it. You don't want to look at what the right. If you want, it completely ends the conversation. Yeah. I mean, to just kind of toss an epithet at him may make you feel better. Right. Right. But it doesn't actually. It's a band aid. It also gives him an out. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. Here's a question I have. Obviously, a lot of the conservative base lives in this land of magical realism where reality doesn't intrude. And a lot of Ben Carson's lies and fantastical statements have just been allowed to slide. But as we saw with Brian Williams, lying about anything to do with the military is like, you're done. So is this West Point thing... I mean, here's the thing. The right hasn't cared about Ben Carson lying up to this point. Yeah, but but this is a military thing. I get it's a military military thing. But they also didn't care about Trump lying about his military thing. They didn't care about that. But Trump is white. He can get away with more. Trump just said, like, I went to military. (laughs) I went to a military boarding school. So it was, yeah, that was... He, he said Trump, it was like Trump the military. Trump is also and famous yeah. and rich and, you know, he has the, the pros outweigh the cons for him with the party. I mean, we'll see. I mean, outright lying about ex- being accepted into West Point, I think, is, I'll be perfectly honest, not as bad as what Trump said. And tr- what Trump said about, like, I went to military school and that's just as good as being in the military. That is, I mean, it's not a lie. It's just a very, very delusional point of view. And that, mm-hmm. to me, was a lot more alarming than Ben Carson basically padding his resume and trying to make people think that he's more than he is. Yeah, but he's also lying about certain things that have led to basically his foundation, his spiritual foundation, which is, for example, the stabbing, right? Mm-hmm. If, he, if that didn't happen, then how did he find God? Right. How does God inform everything? It's just like a domino effect, right? Yeah, and it shows you just how invested Ben Carson is in his own narrative, in his own story. And selling books. It's not, <laughs> it's not just that it's enough for him to say, I am I came up, you know, out of Detroit and I became this famous neurosurgeon. And, you know, that's sort of like the Michael Jordan dilemma. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm so good. Why aren't other people as good as I am? But... It's more than that. He is so invested in his own narrative as a selling point for not just his books, obviously, going on book tour during a campaign, but also for his his legend. And this is a guy who doesn't want to hurt his legend and is very, very careful about it and is very, very sensitive about it. Why is that? Because within conservatism, that legend, that Horatio Alger narrative means something because he's black. It, if he was a white guy trying to do the Horatio Alger thing, no one would care as much well, within conservatism. It didn't right. hurt uh, George. He needs w, a narrative. It didn't hurt George too, right? Lying about them, his military service. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, we, you know, as far as George Bush, I mean, that's a political dynasty. That's a little bit, you know, he has the benefit of legacy, and there's a number mm-hmm. of different things. That's another thing that points to why Ben Carson feels like he needs this. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And actually, I want to ask our listeners, do you think that his whole campaign was just like an elaborate marketing campaign to sell books? Because I know he's on a book tour now. I don't know the name of the book. I don't care what the name of the book is. But he just seems like he's not even real. Like he f- seems like he's a figment of the darkest place of our imaginations or something. Well, there, I don't know. I mean, there was, there was a great piece. Uh, I forget where I read it, I won't take credit for the idea, but basically the incentive, because of Fox News and because of this conservative Sean Hannity and Coulter book publishing regime, the incentives around the Republican presidential candidacy are all centered around making a name and becoming a brand, not being a serious political candidate with a lifetime of public service. Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Martin O'Malley, even like Chris Christie, and like these are all people who were in public service for many years. You can, you, you give them at least that much credibility. You have these people now from Carly Fiorina all the way down the line that they're just, they're cartoons. So, I mean, we're going to continue unpacking this, I'm sure, for months and months to come. But in the meantime, I want to, you know, we're not 
this is not an official endorsement for Ben Carson, for you know, for anything. But we want to like leave you with a cherry on top of his zany Sunday, with this little ditty he's 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 dropping his uh his spot. The Ben Carson mixtape. The Ben Carson mixtape. Heal, vote, vote, inspire, vote, vote, revive, vote, vote. Ben Carson, twenty sixteen. And support Ben Carson for our next president and be awesome. America became a great nation early on, not because it was flooded with politicians, but because it was flooded with people who understood the value of personal responsibility, hard work, creativity, innovation, and that's what will get us on the right track now. I'm very hopeful that I'm not the only one who's willing to pick up the baton of freedom. Because freedom is not free and we must fight for it every day. Every one of us must fight for it because we're fighting for our children and the next generation. If we want to get America back on track, we got to vote Ben Carson. No matter of fact, go out and vote. I'm Ben Carson and I approve this message. Paid for by Carson America. (laughs) That was, that was, okay, that was Aspiring Mogul featuring Aqualung. Um, and it it was as somebody who's been around for a while in that milieu of hip hop, I can tell you that shit was whack. <laughs> it sounded like somebody doing a favor for their dad. Like yeah. it sounded like a local used car ad or something. Like, yeah, you know, like like oh, my son can rap. I'm gonna put him on my car commercial so yeah. he can help me sell uh, the next line of Mazdas. That was worse than a Curtis Sliwa used car. Ouch, like, ouch, ouch. Like New York One freaking commercial. It was really bad. Eh. Anyway. Anyway. All right. Moving let us, on. L- let us know what you think of the Ben Carson phenomenon. Send us your thoughts, your emails, voicemails, showaboutrace at gmail.com or Facebook and Twitter, showaboutrace. Tell us what you think his candidacy represents for the Republican Party, what you think about him as a individual and we will get back to you on the b-side and before we get to our next segment let's take a moment to hear from the people who pay for this every weeknight msnbc's rachel maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together sure that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work but even in a country this big there are no local stories your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news watch rachel as she connects the dots and covers america's news one story at a time It's The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. Next up on this week's show, the New York Times this week published a very fascinating article that got a lot of traction on social media titled, In Heroin Crisis, White Families Seek Gentler War on Drugs. And the basic gist of the article is pretty easy to sum up. We've had a heroin epidemic in the last decade in what are largely white rural communities. 90% of people who've tried heroin for the first time in the last decade were white. States like New Hampshire and West Virginia are having massive upsurges in overdose deaths. And opiates now kill more people in America every day than car crashes. So, And what the article points out is that there's now been a shift in rhetoric and tone in the way these people, white people, talk about the drug epidemic. We've gone from the war on drugs at the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, where America's cities are being torn apart and it was black violence and we need to crack down on these degenerates. No talk of treatment and understanding. Now, lots of talk about treatment and understanding and treating these people as people with a mental or a public health problem as opposed to criminals. And all over Twitter uh, and Facebook, people called bullshit 
and outrage uh, over the people in the article saying that, you know, basically they're hypocrites and, you know, lots of accusations of white privilege and this, that, the other, that these white people were so callous then and now that it's hitting home for them, now they want to take it seriously. Set aside heroin and, and crack cocaine for a moment. The way that you have within a community, like a church, when someone is sick and they announce at the pulpit, you know, so-and-so has got cancer, when you have everybody come together to help their family, sororities helping their members, you have job networks, everybody looks out for each other, so on and so forth. Whenever you have a group, there is more compassion and empathy for people within the group than without. And even in places like churches, where it's all supposed to be about learning about the Good Samaritan and helping all people, and the compassion that goes outside the with that community tends to be a bit of a drive-by, help a starving kid in Africa sort of thing. So is in-group empathy naturally greater? Will it always be greater? And is that a bad thing in and of itself? I think it's a, it makes progress a lot slower. I think mm-hmm. it's a natural thing, certainly. I think it matters when things are happening to you or to someone who looks like you in making sure that that is visible on a national level. And, and also, not just visible, but also because Lord knows black drug users have been visible on the national stage for decades now. It's just right. about, you know, how they've been portrayed. Kimberly Crenshaw, who founded the, the concept of intersectionality, was quoted in this article and by she said, you know, one cannot help but notice that had this compassion existed for African-Americans caught up in addiction and the behaviors it produces, the devastating impact of mass incarceration upon entire communities would never have happened. Mm-hmm. So... Long, exactly. long, long story yeah. short, if this was happening to white folks back then, it wouldn't have happened. And this is something I think that I think communities of color have largely understood for a long time now. And I think, you know, with this crisis, unfortunately, it's taking people dying and getting addicted to, uh, to have, you know, white folks really large uh, understand this on a larger scale. Well, you know, as a parent, I felt, you know, I felt for the parents in that story. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who grew up, you know, who was a teenager in the 80s, who can see the fires in the Bronx burning, who can smell the, the aftermath of that, who felt a way about the way we were being treated and seeing so many people that I'm even related to suffer mandatory minimums and, and all these injustices. Viscerally, when I first read the story, I was completely disgusted. Why does it always things always have to get better or be addressed when white people are involved. But the question is, is is this the way we all are as humans? Like you as a Dominican person from Washington Heights, if you encountered someone who was a cousin of a friend who was struggling, would you care more about that person than, say, somebody from Nebraska you've never even met? No, I... Like I, in terms of your personal compassion? No, personally, I feel... I've been noticing in New York City, for example, a lot more homeless people that have been white and young and definitely strung out on heroin. And I feel as if, like, I look at them and I, the compassion that I have, especially for somebody like me who's kind of like, you know, hardcore and not like sappy, is very, very great because I'm a human being and because I, you know, you look at people the way you want to be seen, right? So I feel also as a parent, like, wow, I wonder what their parent is going through. I wonder what, you know, like their loved ones are going through. So you, you know, as a parent, you don't you don't want to see your you want to see yourself go before your children, right? So I feel a, a, a very overwhelming sense of empathy for them, but in a larger the larger, you know, picture is I don't know, I feel super also disgusted because of the generations generations of people that are still being affected by the war on drugs that got ramped up in the 80s. 
right? So why does it matter for one group? So, but, but, the, but the question is, would any other group of people in the place of these white parents be behaving differently? Are these white people exhibiting some sort of privilege, no. or are they just if other? This it's is the natural capital. human thing. I it's, think it's I think it's a natural human thing. To be honest yeah. with you. I read this article and I'm like, well, these are people being people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but when it, when people of color are being people and wanting to save their children from drugs and from right. all these other issues, then nobody hears you. You get mandatory minimums. Well, this is this is why I didn't call bullshit on the article is because I saw that this was portraying a perspective of a group that from, to which I do not belong. Mm. And I said, you know, this is a group of people who is getting it because it's finally happening to them. And while that may make me angry or resentful or what have you, that's not a really productive emotion for me. I'm glad in a way that white people, at least in government or at least, you know, even in government or in home, are starting to take this drug problem seriously as a public health issue and not as a criminal issue because, you know, if it takes it happening to them, then fine. If it takes police brutality happening to white people for them to understand the severity of the crisis that we're enduring, I mean, it's unfortunate but unfortunately, that may be what it has to take. And you look at, you know, what happened recently in Louisiana with this autistic six-year-old boy being shot several times by police after his father fled uh, after a, a police stop. And the boy is white. Is it going to take this young boy's death, this six-year-old boy who's white, to get people to understand the severity of this crisis? It just might. And it goes for pretty much every issue that primarily affects marginalized communities. Yeah, well, but that's what makes me sick. But why does it make you right? sick? I mean, because he, I. But, when but, I here, but here's here's the question. It's unfortunate, but it's it, unfortunate. It is what it is. But yeah, the, my my question is: Is this is what it is? Is basically like age was not dealt with until Magic Johnson and Ryan White and brought Arthur it. Ash. Uh, yeah, and brought it to the you know the the non-gay community. Gay marriage didn't move the needle until people's sons and daughters came out of the closet and you know demanded recognition from their families like, well, I have gay and lesbian people in my own family. Right now we're also in the middle of sort of a shift where women have gone back to work. I'm in the middle of this one, right, where my wife works full time, she's got, you know, terrible benefits and I'm at home helping with the kid and the whole like family leave thing is just fucked and men are now realizing how fucked it is and so that's going to cause a cultural shift. People say, "Oh, you only understand what happens to you." But that's natural. I think you do only really understand we can all have abstract compassion for the starving kid in africa when we see the tv commercial but you it only ever really hits home when it does affect you personally Mm -hmm. i don't know i think i don't think that's something to be mad at these white people for no i'm not but i'm definitely not mad at any i'm not mad at the but the tone on social media and the reaction of the article is like angry at these people that it took them so long to realize it i think that the way that that it's being expressed on social media are just microaggressions this is a bunch of like oh i can't fucking believe this this is bullshit Mm -hmm. it's just their way of you know it's like it's like a a, um knee-jerk reaction right but i can tell you when i read about that little boy i was extremely upset by it. I was just upset by it as I was about all the other stories that come out mm-hmm. that, you know, affect children of color. Right. But, but I just don't think, I don't think that it should, we have, should have to wait for it to happen to white people for us to start caring. We shouldn't have to. But the reason why you felt that empathy right away is because you're a mom and because you're a part of a marginalized community that, I don't need to explain this to you. Yeah. You know this. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a parent. Yeah. So my point is, is that, I mean, one thing in the article that I actually... I thought was really illuminating was when there was the director of the White House Office of National and Drug Control Policy was quoted in the piece saying that 
because of the demographic of people affected, these parents are more empowered. And like they, like he quote said, they know how to call a legislator. They know how to get angry with their insurance company. They know how to advocate. They have been so instrumental in changing the conversations. Well, damn it, black people have been doing that all those things. They know how to call a legislator. They know how to get angry with their insurance company. That's for damn sure. And <laughs> they know how to advocate. But they're not being listened to. And so like, we really need to address, along with this, not just the lack of empathy from white people from, or from other privileged communities who are not experiencing something until now, but we also need to look at how black people and other people of color have been silenced in this conversation. And the lack of social capital. Right. Like, let's not pretend that this conversation just started because yeah. white people just got interested in it. But that's what it mm-hmm. feels like, and I think that's what the knee-jerk reaction, like, that's why people reacted so badly to it, because it felt that way. And if you just look at, you know, now heads and decks are clickbait. So you look at the, even the title of the piece, you're like, what? Right. You know, that's, that's what I, that's what I think. I mean, I definitely think it's, it's, it's this, this whole episode that erupted on social media is a big walking advertisement for reading the article. You read the entire article, you will see that not only, is that, you know, is the perspective a lot more nuanced than that. But you will read that Kimberly Williams Crenshaw Mm -hmm. quote, and it will drive it home for you. And I know that I said an amen when I read that. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you have Hillary Clinton also, just to pivot a little bit, she has been talking a lot about drug addiction in her campaign, and she's been doing it in New England. She hasn't been doing it in Harlem. She hasn't been doing it in the Bronx. She's been going to New England where this heroin crisis is erupting. You know, she understands that... The only way to really draw attention to get rid of these mandatory minimums that, frankly, a lot of them were established by her husband in the 1994 Crime Act. Yes. She under, like she's she's got some explaining to do. Yes. Um, and she supported that act, by the way. Mm-hmm. She's doing a lot of this because she understands that white people are finally caring and she understands the politics of it. So is it then that the fact that groups and tribes have this kind of in-group bias that itself is not the problem. The problem is that we're segregated into different tribes and groups. Because we accept that it's natural that tribes and groups are going to, Catholics are going to take care of Catholics. People are going to take care of their own first. And, you know, be compassionate toward the good, good Samaritan in a abstract sort of way. But that my group comes first. So then do we need to change the definition of what the groups are? Mm-hmm. Or if that's even possible? It's not possible. We're, I don't we're, know. In, a, we're in a society obsessed with check boxes. That's it's true. Not Here's another question. So you have like this debate between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. And the impetus behind Black Lives Matter is a strong one, a powerful one, which is that it it demands recognition. It demands you see us as humans, you see our problem, you see what is being done to us. To quote the death of a salesman, attention must be paid, right? Right. But to your point about the little white kid getting shot, for white people to recognize that it is all uh, that oh, that this affects you too, right? White kids that, and it's more of a Paul Ryan approach of mass incarceration and police brutality and militarization is an overreach of government that is bad for everyone, which is more of a racially neutral. This is just a bad policy sort of thing. Is that a better tactic? Even though Black Lives Matter is the more cathartic and important part of the movement, is an all lives matter tactic? given what we've learned about in-group bias from this article, is that a tactic that is worth taking? I think fundamentally the spirit behind what people are saying all lives matter 
is, in fact, the, the part of what needs to be done. You just can't say all lives matter while you're doing it because it's become this epithet that's used against right. that particular black liberation. And it has kind of a right. snarky it vibe does. to it. Right. right. And so and nobody was saying that before people started saying black lives matter so they can forget all that. Right. But, I mean, when you talk about the people killed by police this year, you're talking about a lot of white people. Are being killed by police. I mean, of the you know, the Guardian has you know the counted. Right. According to their count, nine hundred sixty-five people have been killed this year. Four hundred forty-three of those have been white. Mm-hmm. And so, they need to understand when you're saying Black Lives Matter, we're trying to make sure that the other part of that total, part of that nine hundred sixty-five, are visible, and you understand that the things that they're fighting for with Black liberation are things that are going to benefit white people too. Mm-hmm. It benefits white people that there isn't police brutality. It benefits white people when their people aren't being profiled because at the end of the day, that might be you in one day too. The idea that we need to sort of work, think about how we identify as, you know, as sort of these sort of segregated groups, I don't necessarily subscribe to that because I think that when you look at these issues, they are already involving all of us. Mm-hmm. So regardless of how we identify, we're not really going to change anything about the, the, the fundamental things that are happening. If I, we all say, you know, one day we're just like, you know what, we're one of these people who go on Twitter like, there's no race, man, you know. It's just the human race, bro. You know, I, don't no see color. I don't see color. I don't see color. You know, if, if you're going to be one of those people. But that's fascinating. I'm talking about as a tactic. As a tactic, being fully aware of the rate of of the racial disparities and that it is something that black, black Lives Matter is the most important thing, right? But as a tactic to take a more Rand Paul government overreach is bad, without because when you when you take the Black Lives Matter stance, then you are specifically reemphasizing the group lines as opposed to saying, "Hey, white people, this 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 impacts you too." Just as like a tactic. you know, just like they're recasting addiction. And they want to recast it and you seeing that there are all these departments that are now, you know, making moves to actually look at the people that are coming into the precincts, for example, heroin addicts as human. We mm-hmm. need to recast Black Lives Matter. We need to recast police brutality. We need to recast so many isms. We need to recast, you know, a lot of isms in order for us to be able to move forward as a society. And it just is a pain in the ass in the context of this article about heroin that people are willing. It shows that people are willing and capable of doing that, of recasting it, of seeing people as human beings. But what I wonder what's stopping those same people, the same the same animal that's behind police brutality and so many of our social ills, what's stopping them from also destigmatizing and recasting all these other things that are affecting our society, like a Black Lives Matter, like all these other movements? Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think at the end of the day, if people just kind of got over themselves a little bit and just actually listen to what Black Lives Matter is trying to say, that we wouldn't be confronting this empathy gap. Just to speak for the white person's point of view for a moment. Please do. When you headline at Black Lives Matter... Then if I'm the suburban white person looking at it from the outside, I automatically don't include myself in that. That's fine. But the thing is, is that, you know, you're increasing the otherization distance between us. And we're talking about intersectionality. When Mm -hmm. I read the story, for example, this one article, I saw myself as, okay, I'm Latina, I'm a marginalized group, but I'm also a mom like that person's a mom. Um, this per- I saw myself in different boxes and where, I, where it overlaps. But when it comes to like, 
the mainstream or let's just say what it is, white people, it's right. like you have to, you know, it's like a completely different thing. And, and this goes to what I was going to say about this is that, you know, when you're the white person in the suburbs who is uh, saying, I don't identify with Black Lives Matter, you're actively separating yourself. The people who are saying Black Lives Matter are not separating themselves. Mm-hmm. They are saying, hey, you, you're part of my community. I want you to understand that Black Lives Matter. This person who is saying that, oh, well, I'm not a black person, so I don't have to care about that. That's the person who is doing the separating, not the people who are saying Black Lives Matter. And I think that we really need to make that point, Mm -hmm. you know, very clear. When we talk about who the onus of, you know, who the burden is is upon in order to bridge the gap, and this goes to what I was saying earlier, the burden is not on people who are saying Black Lives Matter or making a distinction about, you know, what is going on in a particular community or in a particular group. The burden's on the people who say to themselves, you know, well, I'm not a part of this group. Why do I need to care about it? And I think that goes for anything. If there's something, you know, I look at this heroin crisis that's going on in New England. I've never lived in New England. I'm not white. I've never used heroin. Why should I care about it? Well, I should care about it. Because one day that could be somebody that you love. And And that's exactly how I approached it. So... I don't know why it's just one way. It's not that hard. Yeah, it's not that hard. It's, it is a human thing that we have this empathy gap that we only, you know, seem you know care about things when they happen to us. It's a very human thing, but it's not as hard as we make it out to be to overcome it. Okay, so we want to hear from you. What do you think about in-group bias, empathy gaps? Is it just a matter of white privilege or is it a natural human reaction that we all need to deal with and overcome? And how do we address that moving forward with things like mass incarceration, drug abuse, war on drugs, and police brutality. Send us your thoughts at showaboutrace at gmail.com or Facebook and Twitter at showaboutrace, and we look forward to hearing from you. Coming up in a minute, yo, check this out. But first, a message from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world, forcing dark secrets of the past into the light and getting both of them fatally involved in organized crime. Played out against a backdrop of Jean's niche crime scene cleaning business with gangsters, corruption, drugs, and death a constant hazard, Jean, Martin, and their dysfunctional family struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little help cleaning up. Spotless premieres November 14th, 10, 9 central on the Esquire Network. Okay, yo, check this out. Jamil, what have you got? I mean, to be a little bit self-serving, check out my podcast, Intersection, <laughs> iTunes.com slash Intersection. I think we're doing good stuff, and I think it's worth listening to. But I would also point people to um, this.com, which is actually this.cm. It's uh, now open to the public. It's a great site where people can post one link a day. So this is like I re- the I was antidote one of the f- to Facebook. I registered for that when it was just just started. And yeah, I would highly, I like highly it. recommend, yeah, you post one link a day. And it's basically a distillation of what's the best stuff on the Internet. Yeah. And so you go on there. You can follow whomever you want. And, you know, you see the best stuff that's on the Internet. So you don't, you know, you're sitting there, you're working all day. And it's like, I don't feel like going through my Twitter feed, combing through the best thing to do, I think, is to sign up for that service. It's been a really, really good part of my media diet. You know, I forgot all about it. <laughs> I signed up for like a, back in the day. I have like a very skeletal profile on that. But now, yeah, I just remembered now that you mentioned it. Email I got me. an email. I'll follow you. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, that's crazy. 
Raquel, what else? Well, the Dominican Studies Institute at CUNY in New York City is opening an exhibit called Fighting for Democracy, Dominican Veterans from World War II. And it opens on November 11th. And it's going to be an exhibit. And while I'm not super interested in war or anything to do with war, I just think that they do really interesting work in general. And it's always cool to learn things that you didn't know before that could like just add a little, you know, zhuzh to your, uh, you know, conversations. Excellent. Yes. And also, I just want to say one more time that, you know, if people want to hear me on um, The Cypher Show, go to thecyphershow.com and then find podcast number 127, where I uh, sat down for an interview, a really in-depth interview with Sean Sotaro uh, from The Cypher Show. And I want to give them a shout out again. Thanks for having me on. And I'm going to recommend Anna Holmes' essay in The New York Times Magazine, Has Diversity Lost Its Meaning?, I would say that maybe diversity never had any meaning, but check it out. Uh, it's a good read on a, one of my favorite topics, and we will surely be revisiting that again and again. Can I say one more thing? Have you guys seen the Chirac trailer? I have. Yes. And what do you guys think? I know it's coming out on December 4th, but just, you know, since it's a thing. It was not what I expected. I nearly became, well, actually, I really did become a filmmaker for a time, largely because I was inspired by Spike Lee. and. I looked at that trailer, and I am simply find myself in a position of hoping for the best, because while the movie that Jennifer Hudson appears to be in in that trailer looks very fascinating yes. and appropriate for the subject material of violence in Chicago, urban violence in Chicago, the reinterpretation of the Lysistrata, the comedy in which basically women withhold sex from their, you know, from their male partners in order to try to end a war. That just looked a little bit like sexist rubbish, to be honest with you. That comedy itself has some pretty sexist stuff in it. And while it's sort of done under the guise of female empowerment. It was also written, what, 5,000 years ago? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, so. So, you know, <laughs> applying that frame you to, think he'd update it, to Chicago... Seems an odd choice, but that said, art is art, and I'm going to give it a chance. You're going to give art a chance? I'm going to give I'm this... I'm going to give art a chance. What do I'm you think, Tana? I'm, I'm pretty much in the same lane. I've sort of... Most of Spike Lee's recent offerings have been a little... Uh, all right. Um, Inside Man, I think, was such a great, great just heist movie. And great movie. He, he showed that he could just, like, make a great Hollywood movie without sort of, like, his Spike Lee-ness. And you think that would have opened a door for him to start, like, you know... Do it, and he's just, but it hasn't, and this mm-hmm. is part of the function of what's happening with Hollywood and what money is available to make films, and and black films are even uh, at a bigger disadvantage than than others. Yeah, but he started losing me with Miracle of Santa Ana. That's when I was like, what? And he was one of my favorite filmmakers. Yeah, so that still is one of the best war scenes yes. ever directed in film. Um, oh, but okay. <laughs> the, no, that 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 war scene at the beginning of the film is one of the best sequences I've ever seen depicting war revisit. on film. But, yeah, the rest of the movie is is has issues. It's not what you expect, right? It's not what you expect from a Spike Lee. I mean, even though it's cool well, to get what you don't expect sometimes, yeah, right? Yeah. But I, I was, still. I was, yeah, I mean, when it comes to Inside Man, you know, specifically, and I'll just be mm-hmm. brief with this, is, you know, you saw him inject a lot of his spikeness, I would I would argue, into a commercial Hollywood picture. And mm-hmm. it's, it's the most successful picture he's ever done, financially speaking. And, frankly, Hollywood didn't give him a chance to do another one. And right. so he has... You know, done exceptional, I think, documentary work. Yes. But his more creative ventures lately have been more personal projects that, uh, 
you know, have been interesting to see him explore. But, you know, with Chirac, I, I think you're addressing a topic that deserves and requires, I think, the kind of nuance that we expect from him as a, as a great filmmaker. And that trailer was very worrisome. I'm not sure we're going to get it. See it. But I'm, we're going to give it a chance, right? We'll see it. Yeah, we'll, we'll give, give it a, our a chance. Okay. Yeah. That's all for today. Our producer today is A.C. Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com. Now accepting voice memos. Check back in two weeks with the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of the globe-trotting Baritone Thurston, Jameel Smith, and Raquel Cepeda, I'm Tanner Colby, and we won't stop until racism is over. <laughs>